Welcome back. I guess you're like me, you're not a college student, you didn't have any spring break plans, so you're here this morning. Welcome to Seven Hills, as we said already. My name's Tom Combs, as Brad said. Uh, my day job, I work for the Ministry of Young Life, like my wife, who was on stage uh, just a minute ago, so it's a family affair. But we've been part of the Seven Hills community for maybe two and a half years now, and uh, we're grateful to be part of this place and get to join in with you. And we are starting a uh, new series here uh, this week. We just finished up a series on 2 Corinthians. Now we're going to start a series uh, called Seven Stories. Maybe there's a connection between Seven Stories and Seven Hills. I'm not sure if that's purposeful or not. But we're going to look at seven stories in the life of Jesus. And so our pastor, Brian Pierce, not here this morning. He's not on a spring break trip, if you're wondering. Uh, he's actually in Jekyll Island, but it's there to, uh, he's there to to see his daughter May play in a soccer tournament. But he asked me if I would, I'd be willing to fill in for him. I said, that'd be fine. And he goes, well, it's the beginning of a new series. And I thought, well, that's a little odd. You know, it's his series. I, I'll start it off. Okay, I guess that's all right. And then I found out later it was spring break. And I said, well, okay, that'll be all right. And then, then I realized, like, yesterday, it's the time change, you, you know. <laughs> so I just feel like the odds are continually being stacked against me before we start right now. So... Maybe it would be appropriate to pray before we go any further. (laughs) So let's pray. Lord, may the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. We pray to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we're going to look at seven stories from the life of Jesus. And everyone loves stories. Maybe you were fortunate enough when you were younger as a child, someone read to you, maybe it was your parents, stories like Green Eggs and Ham or Goodnight Moon where the wild things are, Berenstain Bears. As we got older, sometimes we transitioned or we traded those children's stories into other stories like the Harry Potter series or classics like the Hardy Boys of Anna Green Gables or the Chronicles of Narnia. And eventually a lot of us trade those stories in books for stories that are embedded in things like TV series now. So we like to watch Grey's Anatomy or This Is Us or Stranger Things because of the story that it tells us. And maybe even unbeknownst to us, a lot of times there's, a, there's another way we tend to get a lot of stories is in these devices right here because whether you know it or not, they tell us stories too. They're always making promises like, come back to me and find out what you've missed out on. And it's no coincidence that social media developers... Uh, like to make their products tell stories. So it's not a coincidence that Instagram has a story or Facebook has a timeline because we just love stories. We're drawn into stories. And often the stories are for fun or for diversion, but a lot of times stories are designed, a good story really, to be purposeful. They aim to teach us something or to challenge our views or the way we understand things. So you can think about a classic book like To Kill a Mockingbird, where Harper Lee creates this character, Scout Finch, who is a bit precocious for her age, but she is challenging our understanding of things like race or gender or social class. And then great teachers, great teachers really always incorporate stories into their teaching, into the information that they give us in their particular disciplines. Why is that? Well, Tony Robbins, motivational speaker, says this. He says, stories go far beyond simply relaying facts and data. Stories emotionalize information. 
We're persuaded a lot of times in our day-to-day life that we really just rely on facts and information. We, we believe and we've been told that we're rational creatures. But in reality, that's not really the case. James K.A. Smith, who is a, a theologian and a philosopher at Calvin College, says that we're really storied people. That we approach the world as if it's a, a narratable place. That there's a story somewhere out there in the world every day. He says, what we do is driven by who we are, by the kind of person we've become, and the shaping of our character is, to a great extent, the effect of stories that, we have, that, that have captivated us, that have sunk into our bones, stories that paint the picture of what we think life is about, what constitutes the good life. So let's look at this. Let's put a, a, a painting up on the screen here. This is a famous painting by Sir John Everett Millay, a a British painter, and it's called The Boyhood of Raleigh. And you see in the painting here, there are these two young boys. And in the bottom corner here is this uh, tiny uh, toy ship. And then there's this old sailor who's telling these fantastic tales of life at sea. And you can tell from from the painting that one boy is a little afraid. He's got his knees drawn up to his chest, but one hands on his uh, face on his hands, leaning in, drawn into these stories. And, this, and this, the story depicts the, the young boy who later became the great explorer, Sir Walter Raleigh. So, so Malay is kind of depicting this almost like a conversion experience for Raleigh. He's drawn in by these epic tales of the sea. And then the, the French novelist, uh, let's put this next quote up here on the, on the bottom there, uh, or right there, uh, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, I'm not sure if I said that right. I practiced earlier, but I probably didn't get it. French novelist has this quote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them task and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. In other words, it wasn't the, the facts or the details or the information about exploring that captivated Raleigh. It was the stories. And they created in him a longing for the endless immensity of the sea. See, we're not really just what we think. We are not, as James K. Smith said, brains on a stick. I mean, just think about it in your own lives. If you're a parent, how many times have you said, you know better? Or even in our own lives, maybe we've said, I knew better. It's not just what we know. It's more than that. We're primarily what we love, whether we know it or not. And what we love is shaped profoundly by the stories that we believe that have captivated us. So if stories so profoundly shape us, it might make sense then that we ought to pay attention to the stories that Jesus taught. So over the next seven weeks, we'll be looking at seven different stories of Jesus. And hopefully, through that process, we'll allow him to have access to our hearts and to our minds. So it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone to know that Jesus' primary way of teaching was actually through stories. And Jesus was a master storyteller. The Bible often will say things like this, Jesus sat down to teach the people, but the next thing he does is he starts to tell stories. He taught, but he stirred their hearts and piqued their imagination with the stories. The stories that Jesus told the most often were these stories about a kingdom, 
and about a king. It's the stuff that a lot of our present-day fairy tales are made of. But Jesus wasn't telling imaginary tales or fantasies. He was telling stories about reality, about the way things were meant to be, and about how this new way of being was breaking into the old way of being. He would often say things like, the kingdom, it's right here in our midst. It's right before you. And the people loved it. They ate up every word that he said. It's no, it's no wonder then when you read in the Gospels always, it says that when Jesus left the city or when he went across the lake, there were always large crowds that followed him. They loved the story that he was telling. Oftentimes, Jesus would tell a story that was meant to challenge that old order of things. And this was often addressed to religious leaders. And they would get completely sucked in until at the very end, they realized that Jesus was actually confronting them in the story he was telling. But by that time, they were already emotionally invested in what was happening. Stories had this way of sneaking into our minds through the back door of our hearts. And again, it's the shaping of our hearts that determines who we are. And it's as if Jesus just seemed to understand that about human beings. And that's the kind of story we have here this morning. One of those stories that Jesus tells. It's from Luke 15. It's the first story in a series of three famous parables that Jesus taught about lost things. So there's the story of a lost sheep, which we'll talk about in a minute, a lost coin right after that, and then a lost son. But we're going to look at one. We're going to look at Luke 15, 1 through 7, which is the story of the lost sheep. And it goes like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And then when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Now, to make this make sense, I want to go back for for context. Uh, There's some stories Jesus tells in Luke 14, but really I'd like to go back even further for context back to the beginning in the beginning there is the trinity it's god the father god the son god the holy spirit and in the relationship between those three there is this abundance of love and joy one theologian calls it the superabundance of the trinity and out of that the the creation is called into being to share in that abundance and that joy From the very beginning, God reveals himself as this lavish host. He is relentless in hospitality. Now, if I ask you to close your eyes, I won't, but if I ask you to close your eyes so that you could could picture God, is that how you picture him? As As a lavish host, as a relentless host? Do you see him fundamentally at the core of his character as this one who is undeniably a loving and longing host? 
oftentimes we see him with our eyes closed as primarily or mostly a judge. And it's not that God is not a judge, it's that he is primarily a host, always inviting, one who longs to feast and celebrate. That's how Jesus describes him. Prior to this, in Luke 14, Jesus has told some other stories. He tells about this, this great man, perhaps a king, who is going to hold a banquet. And he's, he's, he's going to stop at nothing to fill up his banquet hall with people. He sends his servant out throughout the kingdom to bring people in. He's a host who won't quit. He wants to celebrate with his people. At his core being, this is what God is like. And there are a lot of other stories about banquets and about celebrations, and Jesus tells them often. It's, it's one of his favorite themes of these stories to tell about what this kingdom is like. You know, I thought about this kind of as a side note. If celebration and feasting, shared meals and laughter, inviting one another in and building one another up, if those things are not our regular habits and practices in the Christian life, Maybe we're not doing it right. Maybe that'll be the next series that we'll have after seven stories. We'll see what happens. So when we get to chapter 15 of Luke, Jesus is gathered with some of the riffraff of society, this convenient phrase, tax collectors and other sinners, (laughs) and there's a party going on. And the Pharisees are there, and they want an explanation for this. They are, they're suspicious of Jesus. They don't understand how he operates here. In the early 1900s, the journalist and writer H.L. Mencken once described Puritanism this way. He said, it's the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be having fun. The Pharisees are suspicious of Jesus, and they're just plain grumpy. He welcomes sinners and eats with them, they grumble. Of course, welcoming in that culture really was a sign of acceptance. He's bringing all these these sinful people in. And in their minds, Jesus doesn't seize the opportunity. Great move, Jesus. Invite them in to a party. Now hammer them so they know how sinful they really are. And that's not what he's doing. There's a celebration that's going on. And it's at a meal of all things. So this really only confirms their suspicions that Jesus has what, what one theologian calls a secret sympathy with sin. That's how the Pharisees saw them. They're constantly sizing Jesus up. He doesn't respect our traditions. He must be this this sketchy co-conspirator in the sinful ways of this bottom rung of society. The Pharisees apparently are haunted by by the fact or the idea that someone somewhere just might be having fun when they feel like they ought to be sitting around in sackcloth and ashes. We're trying to be good Jews, they think by sticking to the traditions, and Jesus is celebrating. How can that go together? The problem isn't that Jesus doesn't value things like confession and repentance. He does. That's why we take time every Sunday morning here at Seven Hills for confession. The problem is that these religious folks have believed a different story about who God is. Somehow along the way, they've listened to these rival stories about their God. And maybe they're influenced by these stories out in the wider world about other gods out there where he's primarily a judge or maybe only occasionally a host under the right circumstances. And these stories have crept into their bones, creating this distorted view in their mind of the good life. 
Again, Jesus is not against judgment, except when it overshadows rejoicing. So Jesus tells these parables to say to the Pharisees, here's why we're feasting, here's why we're celebrating. But they're really three very clever stories. Because Jesus knows we're made for stories. I mean, he made us. He made us for stories. So he knows our tendency. This is not a bad thing, but our tendency is to put ourselves in the story. And maybe, if possible, to, to make ourselves to be the hero in the story. So he tells these three stories where the heroes are a shepherd, a woman, and a ridiculously, maybe even foolishly, gracious father. It's so clever because these are three things that a Pharisee would never strive to be. A shepherd, you kidding me? Uh, these dirty, often uh, dishonest thieves who happen to hang out with sheep all the time. A woman, no way. And a foolish father? Forget it. But he draws them in with a great story nonetheless. And they discover that they aren't the heroes in this story, but it's God. So let's just look more closely at the story. Jesus starts it by saying, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. It's, it's this beginning to the story. Suppose you, it's like it's rhetorical, like it's going to be self-evident to everybody. Like we're in the crowd and we go, yes, of course, that's what happens. That's what a shepherd would do. I forgot about that. Good, okay, this is a good reminder here. I, I just wonder if that's really true. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I, I have really, I've set out to do some research about this. And I don't, I don't know how to resolve this internal tension about me because I, I don't know anything about sheep. I mean, I know what Brad said. They're not, they're not intelligent and they wander off. Here's the funny thing. If you, if you are looking for a cow expert, you can find like a scientist and you would know they're called a, like a bovine science or a science of bovine, a scientist of bovine science. I don't know what the equivalent word is for sheep, and I've tried to find it. Uh, th there's, their their uh, uh, scientific name is the Ovis Aries, and I, don't, I just can't find like a Oviarian scientist. I just I don't know where to find And then the other thing, I just I don't know. Are there any shepherds in the room? Or do we have anybody here, sheep herding experience? I mean, so that, it just, see, so you, you feel I'm, like we hear this story and we're kind of like going along with it because we don't want to be the ones to go, is that really true what happens? We just go, oh yeah, I guess that's what happens. hundred sheep, one wanders off, the guy goes and gets it. That's great. I, I just got this feeling like in this crowd of riffraff, there might have been some shepherds and, and they're listening to Jesus tell this story and then a couple of them are looking at each other and they're, they're just kind of going, uh, Jesus, I don't want to spoil this, but sometimes that's not what we do. I mean, sometimes we got these sheep that wander off a whole bunch, and we're like, we got 99. That's pretty good. I mean, I think in young life, we, we take kids to camp in the summer. If we had 100 kids, a couple of buses, and we go for a week of camp, it's great. We come back with 99. I'm like, 99%, A+, plus, we're still good. <laughs> we're not shepherds. But we do probably take that story without questioning it as if, obviously, that's what a shepherd do, would do. But I think what Jesus is saying is that in light of the fact that he is God in the flesh, the relentless host, in light of the previous stories about this king who longs to feast with his people, and in opposition to those who would say there's no celebrating in Christianity, 
that Jesus is saying, number one, this is not a normal shepherd. This is an extraordinary shepherd. And number two, this is what God is like. I mean, get this. When he finds his lost sheep, he picks him up, puts his on, puts him on his shoulder, and he starts singing. When my dog runs away and I finally catch up with her, there's no singing. There's no rejoicing. But Zephaniah 3.17 says this. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his voice. And he will rejoice over you with singing. Surely the Pharisees knew this. They knew their Torah. But somewhere along the way, they must have believed a different story about what God is like. Some other story must have captured their hearts. Perhaps one that, that, that they heard over time that they just began to believe where it made them the judge on Yahweh's behalf. Where they got to be the hero for keeping the people straight. But along the way, that story began to squeeze out rejoicing and it robbed people of celebration. Can you get a little more of a picture of why Jesus was always in conflict with those guys? It's not the story Jesus is telling. And if this hasn't been paradigm-blowing enough so far, the story goes on to say, get this, that when the shepherd takes the sheep that wandered off on his shoulders and he comes back singing a song with them, he doesn't even take them back into the flock. It says he takes them into his house. I mean, what kind of shepherd is that? Where, where are you in this story? Have you wandered off? And are you waiting or even wondering if there's a shepherd who's coming for you? Are you found and you're celebrating? Or is it easier to, for you to be something like a judge where you're the hero in your own story and in your mind you can kind of keep others straight and decide what's right for them or the way we ought to be, and at the same time keep God at an arm's length? What's your picture of what God is like? Is there room for rejoicing and celebration? See, this is why Jesus is telling stories, because he doesn't want us to just think straight. He wants our hearts to come alive. I want to tell you one more story. It begins like a lot of our really, really great stories begin with once upon a time. And it's a story about a king. This king was a, was a really, really good king. He was a great king. And, and he reigned over a vast kingdom. And all the people in his kingdom loved the king's reign. They loved having him as their king. And he loved everything there was about being a king. He would climb to the tallest place in his castle and he would look out over all the land all that he reigned over and he would go into his treasury and he would look at the vast wealth that he had and he loved to 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 hold court to sit on his throne and invite in his subjects and to celebrate and to feast with them or to help them resolve their conflicts when they couldn't figure out how to get along there was peace and there was flourishing in the kingdom and this king had a son And he loved this son more than anything else in the world. 
And every day after he would finish his, his kingly duty, he would go out into the vast, beautiful gardens of the castle. And he would find his son and they would play together. Some would say, as they've heard this story, that it reminded them of some of those photographs they would see of John Kennedy when he was president and young John Jr. And they played together on the lawn of the White House. Well, one particular day, the king finished his kingly duties and he went out into the beautiful gardens of the castle to find his son to play, and his son wasn't there. And he began to search for him throughout the gardens and he couldn't find him. And what had happened was that the young boy, the prince, had been playing in the gardens waiting for his father to come and he'd wandered into a part he'd never been to before. And he wandered a little more and a little more till he realized that he couldn't see the castle anymore and he couldn't find his way back. And the more he wandered trying to find his way back, actually the further away he got from the castle until he was really, really lost. Meanwhile, back in the castle, the king realized this was a desperate situation. And so he sent his entire army out to look for his lost son, the prince. Not a a soldier was left behind in the castle. And the young boy, the prince, desperately trying to find his way back to the castle, got even more and more lost. And as he wandered into the the deeper, darker woods, crossing streams and, and, and creeks, thick, tight woods, things would happen. He'd fall down into the mud and the dirt. His clothes would get torn on branches. And he became kind of this disheveled mess. And he would wander into a gathering of people in the kingdom, a little village perhaps, and he would say, hey, I'm the prince. Can you help me find my way back to the castle? And people would look at him and they'd go, there's no way you're the prince. Look at you. And he'd wander to somebody else and he'd say, I'm the king's son. I'm trying to find my way back to the castle. And they would go, no king's son looks like you. It can't be true. And Minutes turned into hours, and hours turned into days, and days turned into weeks. And because he was a small boy, and because big people were telling him the same thing over and over again, after a while, he began to believe it was true, that he was not the prince, that he was not the king's son. Meanwhile, the king continued to search across all of the the kingdom to find his lost son. But that boy grew up. And eventually he fell into what we call the wrong crowd. And there was nothing beneath that crowd that they wouldn't do. They took what they wanted, however they wanted, violently, desperately. Uh, Nothing was beyond their their efforts. Uh, They wreaked havoc in the kingdom. And it wasn't long before that prince became the leader of this group of people. And sometimes when he was traveling with his band of thieves and robbers and killers and and the the castle would come into view, uh, he would spit on the ground in defiance of the king. And then sometime later, through a strange set of circumstances, uh, he was captured and he was brought back into the castle. He was tried and he was convicted of his crimes, which were many. And for them, he was given the death sentence, which he deserved. And so he was in the, in, in the, in the depths of the castle, in the, in the dungeon, in his cell, 
waiting for the next day when he was to go to the executioner. And that night, as he sat in his cell, the king came down into the dungeon. And he sent away the guards, and he unlocked the door to the cell, and he walked into the cell, and he sat on the bunk opposite where his son was sitting. And if you and I had been in the room, we could have seen the tears that began to stream down the face of the old king. And finally, he spoke up to his son, and he said, My son, I want you to know that there's not been a day where I've not searched everywhere in the kingdom for you. But now, it's come to this. You're to go to the executioner tomorrow. But I've decided to give you your freedom. And then he stood up, and he walked out of the prison cell. Now, the son, a little bit stunned by all this, stood up, walked over to the prison cell door and pushed on it, and it opened. And then he looked out into the hallway and realized there were no guards there. And this was really puzzling. And he went, oh, (laughs) I get it. I understand what's going on here. He thinks that if he leaves this prison door open, I'll just come back to the castle and I'll be his lackey. I'll, I'll be his servant boy. That's what he thinks will happen. I tell you, that old king is more senile than I thought. And so that young man grabbed his cloak, walked out of the prison cell door, and disappeared into the crisp night air. And it was maybe two weeks later when that young man learned that it was the king who went to the executioner in his place. What is it that you think the young man did when he found out that the king went to the executioner in his place? What did that prince do? Do you see yourself in that story? Do you understand that you are a son or a daughter of royalty? And that the king has taken your place? He's borne the burden of sin and has defeated its enslaving power so that you can be freed from this prison cell that we've been fooled into thinking is the good life? Not to be returned to the flock, as it were, but to enter into the kingdom now. To experience life the way it was meant to be now. And to hear the king rejoice over you with singing. What story do you believe the most? Is it one like this? Or the countless others that Jesus told, the one that you are made for, where there is a king who is graciously and relentlessly inviting you to live in his kingdom that's filled with rejoicing, with this thunderous applause of an approving God that you were made for? Or is there some rival alternative story that you believe more? that promises you the moon, but has never, ever, not even once, delivered life like that. What story do you believe the most? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gifts of stories. 
and seep into our heart and shape us. Would you give us the courage, Lord, the faith to trust the story we were made for, the story that you've given us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.